Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Mr. Tom Beards, a true Renaissance figure on the scene in the present day, a painter, an artist, an activist, a writer, a little bit of everything and everything done well. Welcome to Seldom Said, Tom. Oh, thanks so much, man. Nice to talk to you. If we could start with uh, a bit of personal background, where you're from, what you've done, and what brought you to this time and place. Sure. I think most people would know me as playing Philip Chancellor III on The Young and the Restless. Mainly 1986 to 1989, that was my three-year contract. I was 24, playing 17-year-old Philip, who was fought over for custody by Mother Jill and Mrs. Chancellor, the rich lady. And then I fell in love with uh, Cricket, but Nina got pregnant, and uh, so I married her. So people may remember that storyline. That was big. A hundred million people worldwide watched that. And although I died in 1989 because I wanted to be a movie star after, I came back 20 years later as uh, the first openly gay actor in a principal role on a soap opera, and we revised my character from the dead, uh, he became uh, gay as well, and that he had hit his death for 20 years, so that was a storyline. There's a complexity to soap operas that has always intrigued. You've described such a, an eccentric role to play here, there, and everywhere involved with different people. How did you prepare for such roles? Uh, so many myriad changes. How much time did you have to read a script and memorize it? Uh, well, you know, we get there to the set pretty early, and then we get makeup on, and we have blocking. So there's hours before you're seen, and usually you don't have that much to say, and sometimes it's re- repeated day after day. So, you know, we had plenty of time in the day to learn lines. But uh, I, I was a method actor, and I did go to some... Uh, coaches that so I used method exercises when I had to cry uh, on screen and I felt I did that pretty good I was able to be very vulnerable when I needed to be Using that term method and going back to actors who raised it in the artistic world when I know for instance I was young Sally Fields, Marlon Brando, people like that Harvey Keitel do you return to memories, sense memory, and look for a moment and recapture it and then project? You can, but you can even invent stuff. You can have like, okay, there's flying screwdrivers coming at my ears. You, know, you, can, you can use any method you want. Uh, but yeah, that's what I did. For me to cry, I would have to concentrate on something or, or just to convince myself something was really happening to, to bring my reality. That's what I had to do. Did you ever have a moment, Tom, where you literally had to extemporaneously present because for the moment the responses escaped you? I'm sorry, I don't understand. What? Say that again? There are certain people, I know there's a movie called Assassination Tango, Robert Duvall. He just decided to stop, and for the next 12 minutes, he just made it up as he went along with his wife, who was his co-star. Have you ever had a moment where you felt compelled to just put the script to the side, or if you didn't remember it, just create your own script in your mind? No, not professionally, you know, because uh, when I was on The Young and the Rest, there were a lot of people involved holding cameras and directing and stuff like that, so we didn't have the freedom to do that, nor the guest spots that I did, like on Melrose Place, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, uh... And like, a, and I really haven't done any theater, so I've never really had that freedom to uh, just just take a break. Talking about this stage in your life, that epiphanal moment, that Damascus moment, can you refer back to it when, in a sense, you felt, I want to do something presenting myself with that will involve my projection, my use of my own personality, voice, tenor, manner, did you have a moment when you realized you might want to try to act? Well, when I was a little boy, I remember watching Mike Connors play Mannix on the TV series, and that was the moment. I thought, oh, wow, that's 
possible if I grew up to be a man, I could do that. I could be on TV or a movie star. So that, uh, yeah, that became an obsession, which lasted until I was 49. And then I left Hollywood after being there 28 years. And that's when I moved to the mountains with my rescue dogs, and I'm able to paint for a living. So, you know, my life now is really ideal and woodsy and nature-related, quite different than Hollywood. Your life seems to be an incredible dichotomy. I would wonder if the painter living in seclusion would have any advice for the young man arriving on the set. What would be the most important bit of information you'd like to share with your 19-year-old self? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question, and I think I would share it across all careers, is that uh, you're probably best when you're not like everybody else. That's intriguing. I would tend to agree to a great, to a great degree, frankly, with that. Explain, extrapolate on it. That's an intriguing thought. Well, you know, I was a skinny, gay, I can't say teenager, although I looked like a teenager, but I wasn't. But uh, I, try, I wanted to be these other straight soap opera hunks, you know, and I also wanted to be Monty Clift, who was my idol. And so I did try to emulate them and copy them, but, you know, the older I got, the more I realized, uh, you know, what do I have that stands out, you know, and that's not trying to be like somebody else, you know, it's, it's, it's the true Tom Beard's moments, which, you know, of course, I put in my Young, Gay, and Restless memoir as well, and I put in my canvases these days as well, although I'm hired mostly to paint people's grandmas and their pets, you know, that stuff doesn't really shine like when I really spill my head and the sub subconscious comes out. You know, that then that stuff I think is special because that is so true and original. I believe it was Dean Martin who said, and it might be apocryphal, he said Montgomery Cliff would act, could act with his eyelashes. Do you feel that certain people are just born to be projectors or transmitters of an art Born painters, born actors, born speakers, singers, dancers, whatever the case might be? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe there's some child prodigies, but because I really believe in anything is possible, you know, I, I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from going into anything. So I look back at my life, and, you know, probably the only thing indicative would have been my creativity, which... I do all the time, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily say I was a born actor. In fact, I was a bad actor a lot of the time, and I wouldn't say I was a born writer. And, you know, all, all the stuff that I'm doing good at now, you know, it took me decades to learn. Do you feel, then, there's a book in everyone? Oh, sure, there's a book in everyone. Do you think so? I do, but I've met uh, those who are skeptical, especially persons who pretend to be professional writers and people who teach creative writing is a tendency to believe that one learns a craft and yet the craft seems to be so tied to your soul that it's got to exude from your very pores if you wish to do it. I don't know about that because, you know, you can really slap together books like crazy, but I like that you mentioned soul because I feel that I do put the soul in my books. Uh, and if I didn't, well, I don't know. You know, because they're memoirs mostly, I feel that people really need something uh, significant or different in my book. But I guess if I was putting together fiction, I don't know. Does one put their soul in fiction? I guess so. There's always that fear of what to present and what not. I'd interviewed a number of singers, and one question always came up, dealt with whether they might leave too much on stage one night and then not be able to recapture it. Is there a limit to the honesty that you put in your writing? Or is everything open and there for the reader to deal with? Well, uh, what I am learning is that the more I put out there, the stuff that I'm really embarrassed about, I mean, I, I write stuff that I never told anybody. I had fat injected in my penis when I was 20, when I was 30. I didn't even tell my boyfriends that. You know, I, I write about incest fantasies. 
I write about taboo subjects in this book. And although the prospect may be terrifying at first, it's really freeing. And what I'm learning is that the more you put out there, if you put everything out there, it's liberating to other people, not just you, but other people. So, no, I don't think you can put... I don't think it's possible to put too much on the page or too much on the stage. Is your creativity then, Tom, your therapy? Mm, I wouldn't know my life without it. So, yes, it's mm. certainly, that's my best self. It centers me. That's really quite interesting and intriguing. I would imagine there are people out there who would benefit from liberating their own thought process and deal with life in a very open way. Oh, I think so. I don't know where where it would go wrong. However, even saying that, you know, as an actor, I could not write the book I wrote, Young Gay Restless. No, that, I don't think that would help my acting career at all. So maybe, maybe there is a point where, especially today, you know, people have to be so careful about what they present to others. But luckily, I'm not. I'm not in that basket. You know, I'm free from that. I live in the forest. Uh, I'm more in touch with what I want to do as life lessons and to uh, override uh, conditioning, traditioning, and uh, limits. You know, that's more important to me than uh, taking somebody else's route to uh, a big place or a big prize at this point. Are you the type of individual who, by his very nature, is most creative in solitude? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Are you that way? At times. At times I am. But I notice that on occasion when I feel that way, once I exhaust the muse for the moment, I like to return to a cosmopolitan atmosphere and then go back. I do like the mountains, the forests, the seashore, especially in the off-seasons. Do you write to fruition or do you take breaks, move about, go into a city perhaps, come back, or do you finish it all in one swell? No, I mean, well, paintings I could perhaps finish pretty quick, but uh, writing takes forever, so that's cut up into many, many, many different time periods. I've often wondered, and I would imagine that many of the readers do also, when a writer feels, and I've done an element of writing myself, when is the book finished? When is it time to talk to the agent and call him and say, all right, it's time to go to press? When is it time to edit? Have you been totally satisfied with what you've written? Or do you think to yourself, like watching the screen, I could have done it better, I could have done this differently, I could have added more? Uh-huh. Well, you know, this last book uh, that I've done, Young Gay Restless, I started it two years ago, and at that point I thought, oh, this is so good that a major publisher should pick it up. Well, two years later, the book is so much better, so much more full, so uh, I'm glad that I didn't uh, you know, that that I didn't publish it two years ago. Uh, I don't know, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Do you enjoy watching yourself act, or did you when you were on The Young and the Restless? No, I didn't enjoy... I, you know, I, I liked watching myself... Uh, I, I liked watching the press that I've got, like uh, newspaper articles and me in front of thousands of fans at soap operas, because it, it really fed my ego. But acting, usually there was something that I felt I could do better, or that I would look and say, oh, no, I didn't quite believe myself there. I was too nervous. So, uh, yeah, not always. There are those... Uh Actors such as, let's say, for the purpose of argument, Susan Lucci, who's just stayed with the soaps. Can you describe the distinctive nature of daytime television? I, I missed the first part of that question. I use the example of Susan Lucci as an individual who has stayed with the soaps. Can you relate to the audience and describe the nature of daytime television? I relate to the uh well I watched soaps as a kid before I was on them so I understand the appeal uh you know and it, it is a great it's a great job that's one thing that I really admired about Jeannie Cooper who was world famous for playing Mrs. Chancellor is that she you know one of the few people that has worked 50 years in the entertainment industry 
and that is wowing. Uh, I think back, you know, if I would have stayed with the Yemeni Russes instead of leaving it because I thought I could be a movie star, uh, how would that have been? And I, I look at my life and think, well, I wouldn't have had the issues of anxiety because I would have been confident with all that attention, and I wouldn't have had the money issues I've had because I, I would have been rich. But I personally would have been so bored staying on a soap as long as Susan Lucci or Jeannie Cooper. It's just there's nothing about my life that is so fixed and so stable like that. So you really then could not read anything into the role you played to make it different as an actor might if he did the same role in a play night after night after night. You simply did the lines once, they were recorded, and you walked off set. Well, sure, but I brought my subtext to it, you know, which, you know, hopefully made it real. But sure, as an actor, one is very limited. They're told, you know, they're told how to wear their hair, what clothes to wear, where to move, exactly what lines to say. There's a different freedom that comes when one's a painter. A painter dictates his thought onto the canvas with brush in hand and palette and left. Would you ever want to do that on stage? Would you ever like to direct? Well, yeah, sure. I would like to direct. And I do a lot of video editing, uh, you know, so, you know, I'm a creative sort. We're within a minute one some odd seconds so it would hopefully be a quick answer because I don't want to cut off what you're saying this is a terribly interesting conversation we'll come back in a moment but if you could think about our return creativity itself fathomless terminal continuous when you paint is it always flowing would you simply say, as we discuss the book or the acting, it's finished? Uh, yeah, did you want me to answer that now? I can go quick. Okay, give it a go. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I never have a, a writer's block or painter's block. It, it, block. it just flows from me. So, uh, and, and I think the best stuff just turns up, and I look at it, and, I say, and then I can analyze the... Uh, symbols for the dramas that are going on in my subconscious. Let's write Terminus on the uh, conversation for the moment. We'll return in a few minutes. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. It's the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Mr. Tom Beards who is a man with an eclectic background. Every time I speak to him or posit a question, he seems to describe another aspect of his creative life. Tom, if you would uh, take the position of your acting career, and we'll finish with that segment of your life and then go on to the books, which are marvelous. But uh, in the aspect of your professional acting career, you mentioned doing a lot of spot-on roles, starring roles, were they simply done for the enthusiasm of the role or simply to keep active and to earn the check? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it wasn't any art in me going on Melrose Place or Murder, She Wrote, or Matlock. That was for a paycheck, and that was to keep my credits alive. Yeah, I enjoyed doing it. Yeah, a absolutely. And I wanted to do more of it, but my auditions really sucked. <laughs> I wasn't that confident. Really? And yet you were hired. Are you saying well, that, in a sense, uh, you can't relate to the rationale why you were hired? Well, luckily, you don't have to audition for Murder, She Wrote. They cast that by videotape. So that was probably why I got, I got uh, two jobs out of that. I was a guest star for two years. That's intriguing. What might have happened if Melrose or Murder, She Wrote or one of these programs would have said... We want you for a continuous character. Would you have acquiesced and accepted? Oh, of course. And my manager said that. He said, I can't tell you, but Merwell's place, they're going to make you a regular. And oh my 
God, I was so excited because that's what I wanted. I wanted to be fame, famous, very, very famous. Uh, but it didn't work out. They didn't make me a regular, so ouch. If they had, uh, one is the result of their experiences, as they say. Do you feel you still would be in the woods with your two rescue dogs, enjoying a quiet life? Good question. I feel like I would have ended up here anyway. My plan was to be Tom Cruise, but when I was Tom Cruise, I was going to be able to afford an incredible, you know, uh, mountain uh, reclusive place. Uh, so I kind of just skipped the whole movie star part and landed up here after a midlife crisis in a very affordable rental. I paid nine ninety five a month for this incredible two-bedroom lodge home that is tucked into the forest, and I was paying twice that for an apartment in Hollywood. So people say, oh, you're living the dream. And I'm like, well, you could live it too. It's actually cheaper here. One can say that loneliness is a lover you can trust. Is that the case with your definition of solitude? <laughs> I love your quotes. <laughs> I love your mind. Uh, loneliness is a lover you can trust? I've never heard that. Uh, huh, that's funny. Uh, I never feel lonely, and, and that's why I'm fine being alone. I've, I've always had a, a very rich spiritual belief system. In fact, I'd like to... Uh, investigate more about talking to spirits because I always feel like I could have and that's what I want to concentrate on now now that my sex book is all out there uh, yeah I don't know if I answered your question there did I jump around you covered all the spots do you feel then you're a spiritual or religious person or both or neither not religious no 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 I'm not I'm nothing traditional. In fact, I buck traditions. I won't belong to a particular political party. I'm not a follower of anything. I'm very suspect of uh, groupings. You know, and I really do. Uh, I'm, I'm very individual. Now, hopefully, we're at the crux and the core of our discussion. Your books are incredibly personal, Obviously, pragmatically, professionally, they're very well written. They present the case in a very cogent, practical way. But they are so incredibly touching. Forgiving Troy, if you would not mind, and it is not being intrusive, can you describe the rationale behind the book? Well, I had to write the book because I was living through events that were bigger than life, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, and so I felt an obligation to share the story. What had happened, essentially, is my paranoid schizophrenic brother, Troy, killed our mom, beat her to death with a baseball bat in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was 19, she was 49, and she was, she was a wonderful mom. He was acting up for years and problematic, and it threatened me, it threatened other people, but none of us took him serious. My mom tried to get him help. And uh, there really wasn't help, because they didn't know if he was schizophrenic or not. So even when he was incarcerated, he broke out. When he was in a psychiatric hospital, he choked the nurse. So, you know, uh, I think she felt responsible, and she knew that he was going to kill. And I believe that she would wanted it to be her and not me or other people. So five years after he killed her, I did find my way back to his prison, and... Uh, I got him on medicine because by that point he was schizophrenic, whether he was before or not. He was babbling, he was incoherent, he was non-existent. But me coming there and getting him on medication kind of brought him back. And he wasn't a mean wolf. Uh, he was uh, uh, like a child. He had regressed to a little boy. He's like, when you go to heaven, do you pee in the clouds? You know, where do you go poop? And uh, won't you go to heaven with me? And won't you be tortured with me? He didn't even know he killed mom. So I had to, you know, I had to explain that to him. And, uh, yeah, so very, very emotional moments in our visiting room. That very title, Forgiving Troy, did you have to go to a very dark and deep place in your own psyche to forgive? Well, 
yeah, I had to get to a place where I, where I realized, you know what, uh, not forgiving him and uh, scolding him is, is not going to serve anybody. Mom's dead. It's not going to serve me, and it's not going to serve him. So I had to kind of intellectualize what would be the most productive thing here. He needed a big brother, and I needed a little brother. So, uh, yeah, forgiving, uh, it was uh, an intellectual choice, but, you know, it certainly worked. Something so intense, Tom, did it write itself? Uh, did it write itself? Well, I think what you're asking is, uh, I don't think it could write itself. I mean, after you kill a mom, I, I don't think it, it can get right. Right uh, right in the sense of W-R-I-T-E, the fact that you could simply sit there and all of this that you've held in simply tumble out onto the page. Did the book write itself? It was quite a process because I also had to research 400 pages of court documents that I didn't know existed uh, about Troy's background and his animal killing diaries and uh, uh, mom's trying to get help and stuff. So, uh, no, it, it was complicated. It was work. Do you have a specific writing process, Tom, that you use to some degree each time you create? Not really. Now, keep in mind, I create constantly. So, you know, usually there's a time of the day when it's like, okay, now it's time for the project that I'm working at, you know? And if I'm reluctant because it seems like it's such an ordeal, you know, I'll just have to, you know, push myself to get to a certain point where it gets easier. Why do you feel we haven't learned enough about what we categorize as mental illness, we still stigmatize it to some degree. There's been movement in a positive way, but it certainly has not been translated into success. Well, it's so vague. You know, what is mentally ill? That's so vague. Uh, I don't know. You know, I look back at my brother and think, uh, what could have helped him? Uh, I think the only thing that really could have helped him is if he would have concentrated more on positive things in life than his satanic diaries and stuff like that, you know, and that's kind of, that's my belief system as well, is, is you know, uh, you are, you emit a vibration and you attract that to you. We oftentimes overuse terms, but do you consider yourself then an optimist, a pessimist, or just a pragmatic man? Uh, certainly not pragmatic. I think that uh, I think we're living in a unified field of potentiality with no limits. I think all that exists is light and consciousness. So I'm very, very excited about the possibilities, especially when one gets in touch with uh, that the universe is actually set up uh, to provide everything, you know, whether it's here or the afterlife or the life after that. I think it's all good. Or it can be all good, but it can, it can also, you can also stop if you think it stops. My most recent guest before yourself, Tom, was a Buddhist practitioner, a Tibetan Lama, an associate of the Dalai Lama. And his description of life as I transported him to the train was pretty similar to yours, rather similar, in fact, your spirituality seems very individualistic, but always applicable to change. Would you write about it? Could there be your own biblical incantation where you talk about a spirituality that you've discovered? Mm, could you rephrase that? Could you write those thoughts about life and extraneous matter and creativity, a kind of starshine? Could you put that on a page? Could that be your next book? Oh, I, I would like uh, my next book to be more on that on that uh, plane, for sure. I would like to uh, grow as a spiritual man, uh, and and I would only share it because I think it could inspire and help other people. I think uh, 
we, uh, at this point, most human beings uh, don't see how wonderful they are and what they can do. And uh, I would like to be able to help that. Would you ever be tempted to deal with children and mentor them through those difficult moments that you, I, and virtually all of us on this blue globe have experienced? Hmm. Good question. I mean, I'm not a big fan of kids. I don't have to be around them. But but I would probably prefer to be around a troubled child than an obnoxious, regular, happy child. <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose I do have an affinity. I used to, uh, I tutored for a uh, Art of Elysium charity, and I had Jacques. Jacques was this uh, boy from uh, South Africa who was burned in his face, and he was a triple amputee. And he would come over, and we would paint together. And he was so inspiring, such a, a wonderful kid, you know, that... Uh, would get around with his uh, fake, both both legs were fake, you know, and uh, yeah, that was that was pretty amazing. And I'm glad that uh, that he liked being around me and, and got stuff from that. You seem to be able to find an element of love in what you do and who you deal with. Have the people you've worked with act as your own personal therapy? I'm sorry, I missed that. I, I seem to find love, and then what about the people I work with? The people around you spoke of a young child, Jock, and people along the way. Do they act as your own curative process? Do they act as your own therapy? Well, I think what they are are usually uh, mirrors, right? I would think that. Do you think that? Indeed, I do. Indeed, I do. Do you find yourself in each of them, then? Oh, I do. I mean, even the uh, negative qualities. I can see, aha, this is, this is something I'm working on, for sure. We like to reward people in the creative arts. We tell people they're great actors and they win Oscars. We tell people they're great painters and we hang them on walls. Do you feel that awards and recognition should remain so important in any industry that relates and relies on individual expression and creativity? Well, that's a good question, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it from a different perspective. Keep in mind, I am an artist, and I don't have a guaranteed income, so self-promotion is very important to me. So any awards I win, I always talk about. I won awards for Forgiving Troy, et cetera, because it just helps my business. Also, 10 years ago, I, I began... Uh, AmericanArtAwards.com, and what I do is I uh, we uh, name the 25 best galleries and museums in America, and they agree to vote on art from 60 countries. And in doing so, I am partly responsible for art awards and certificates going to artists around the world that would never have that kind of validation. So I can see how it can serve them. And, uh, yeah, I totally see how that serves them, but I can also see how award shows can seem pretty superficial. We're within two and a half of the second station break. Usually when things go this quickly, it's indicative of a good program, so I'm appreciative of it. Tom, if you could start the answer and then perhaps continue after the break, what are the criteria you employ when you judge an artist, an actor, a painter, a dancer... What do you look for? How does one define creativity? Uh, hmm. If you're asking who my favorite actors are, I would say Sally Field, like you said. Uh, oh, Stockard Channing. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess, I, I don't know. You know, I think those particular actresses have something very real that I gravitate to, something very warm and likable. In a sense, then, the actor, the painter, the singer, the dancer is portraying an elemental self in front of strangers? You know, I didn't hear, I didn't hear that very clear. Can you say that again? Okay, most certainly. The actor, dancer, singer, portraitist 
Is he literally portraying an elemental self in front of strangers? Not necessarily, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of acting, right? To some degree, yes, and yet one finds individuals always having the germ of who they are in what they do. That danger of leaving too much. A great book, James Dean, The Mutant King, uh, he just left part of himself on every stage, on every piece of film, so that in a sense his acting was both acting and simply a reflection of who indeed he was. What I'd love to do, Tom, uh, it's a marvelous conversation, I'd love to hold off any further answers you have until our third segment, which unfortunately will be our last, but I'm going to hold out an invitation for a later time if you'd like to come. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, my name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is unfortunately the last segment of a marvelous interview. Our guest has been Tom Beards. Tom, I'll forego the introduction and the explanatory description of who you are and where you've been by simply asking the next question. I don't want to waste any time. You used a word that I found both stimulating and troubling, disillusionment. What brought on disillusionment to your career as an actor? <laughs> I have to say, I, I really think that my publicists used that word. Because uh, I look back, and, and it wasn't me being disillusioned with Hollywood that um, was the impetus for me leaving it. It was more my overstimulus, my anxiety in the crowds. And everywhere you moved in Hollywood, you would come across uh, people uh, and, and busyness. And, uh, you know, I was always uh, pushing to try to get an interview or try to get a job or try to get a boyfriend. So uh, it didn't feel well. I couldn't really shut my eyes and close any of that out. So, you know, I, I found peace in the mountains. I found peace away from people. Um, you know, maybe because I'm so sensitive, I pick up stuff. I don't know. But uh, I was uh, barraging myself with uh, negative uh, thoughts. Oh, you hurt that person's feelings. Oh, you should have smiled. Oh, you should have done this. Oh, you should have done that. And uh, I'm free of that now that I'm in the woods painting pictures. I compliment you on finding that measure of peace. How did you find your own personal Shangri-La, your own little refuge? Mm, I was just... Uh, a, a Craigslist, I think. <laughs> Advertising, right? <laughs> you are pragmatic. <laughs> the, inher the inherent joy in painting, what was that, in a sense, when you compare it to the other things you've done in your life? What is the inherent joy that motivates you to put paint to canvas? You know, I, I think it was, uh, I'm just motivated by creativity, and I remember coloring as a child and playing light bright and etch-a-sketch, and I think what's great about the painting uh, is that there's an immediate gratification, and you, you can see right away what you're doing, as opposed to when you're trying to write a song or, you know, build something or write something, you don't you don't see right away the, pro the progress, so I think that's where it's so exciting for me. I had known a colleague who loved the Rock Hudson, Doris Day movies, and when she had read about Rock Hudson's privacies, she was terribly traumatized by it, the pressure the man must have been under. What brought you to the point of saying, this is who I am? I can do no other. Uh-huh. Well, okay, uh... Probably just because I wasn't that convincing and I wasn't that good uh, trying to be closeted, you know. Uh, I just really didn't pull it off. If I had become a huge movie star that, that was able to do that, uh, I probably would have come on anyway at, at this time. 
because for me, I'm really not living to try, you know, to for a modicum of success. Uh, I'm really kind of living to please myself and to push past the shame and restrictions that I had as a kid. The term modicum of success, you also seem to be not looking for a modicum of acceptance, accepting for yourself in those private moments. Yeah, in fact, that's one reason that I could write this book, uh, is that I'm at a point where what you think of me doesn't matter to me. You know, and that was uh, the lesson I learned leaving Hollywood. I had to be a movie star. I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to. And I didn't. And so I came here and I thought, you know what? I'm going to die at some point, 30 years, whatever. Am I going to be bitter? You know, am I going to go on to the next existence unfulfilled because I wasn't a movie star? And I realized what other people thought of me didn't matter. I could be a movie star here. And I filmed a movie in my kitchen that nobody has seen, but I saw, and I proved to myself, I'm a movie star. That's enough. It doesn't matter what other people think. That is a marvelous descriptive of what a person should do when they simply want to be at peace with themselves. I congratulate you. And that's also what I've kind of done, even though the young and the rest have silenced my gay storyline in 2011. You know, I certainly talk about uh, my gay storyline in my book, Young, Gay, and Restless, right? And even though Playgirl turned me down three times, maybe because I said, you have to say I'm gay, I don't know. I pose naked in this book. So uh, that's become a pattern of mine that it's like, okay, you say no, and I'm going to say yes anyway. Writing the book, you said, and we both seem to agree that there's a book in everyone, at what point was Young Gay and Restless a book that you wanted to write? Uh, a couple of years ago, people were accusing Trump of sexual assault, and I wrote on Facebook, I think I've been assaulted several times, and then a bunch of guys were sharing their accounts as well. So I was accumulating all their stories for a book, which I have coming out in a month, called How Men Really Feel About Sexual Assaults. And so... That, you know, I was just going to add mine to it. But then once I started, I couldn't stop. And that's why I have 400 pages of my journey, you know, from the amusing stuff and my misperceptions about sex as a child to, uh, you know, many, many, many partners uh, and my growth through that. That term, sexuality, it's a term that we banter around. We still have, to some measure, a Victorian fixation. How do you define the term, personally? Well, I ask in the book many times, is sex still naughty? Uh, so I'm trying to break past that, and I'm trying to get other people to break past that, too, because it seems so silly to me that uh, people on Facebook, uh, like the Democrats, if they... They don't like Trump. A picture of Melania, Melania comes up, and they say, she posed naked. And they say, oh, is that naughty? And then the Republicans, when they see Bill Clinton, they'll say, oh, he had a blowjob in the office. And they say, is that naughty? You know, because it seems like a bunch of people are pointing their fingers saying, naughty, 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 shame, shame, shame. And we're adults. You know, and I don't understand that. It's just so funny and ridiculous that there's so much sex shaming going on. If we go back to what has been called, perhaps truthfully or not, the golden age of Hollywood, there were love stories, there was sexuality, there was danger, there was adventure, but it was done in a very inferential way. The rolling waves coming in to indicate something more. Do you feel that we have become too explicit on one hand and not really adventurous enough in exploring the true feelings of a moment? Is there enough effective storytelling out there? You know, I'm a big lover of the old black and white movies. I love them. Uh, you know, so I can understand the appeal of that. But I don't know. You know, fundamentally, can, is it possible to be too explicit? You know, I mean, isn't shame involved when you start to say, no, no, that's not nice, or that's, that's wrong? So I don't know. When you say you love the old black and white movies, uh, 
who could you see again and again? Uh, well, I'm a Joan Crawford fan, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm a Betty Davis fan. Uh, yeah, they just seem to really stand out. When you see someone who is just good, whether they be on stage, on film, or on canvas, how do you convince yourself that you have seen greatness? Joan Crawford was described as a great actress, the same with Betty Davis. Picasso, Cezanne, how do you define greatness yourself? Well, I think that is so subjective, isn't it? Uh, I guess I can only say what moves me. It's like sometimes I've been in a museum and I've seen in a room of Van Gogh's and I've cried because I just look at the canvases and I think, oh my God, there was no rest. There was just no rest. And that's what I pick up from that. And I'm moved by that. You know, uh, I, I don't leave thinking, oh, that was great. But I'm moved thinking, I'll never forget that. Children paint freely. Children play freely. When you paint, can you still play? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, usually I don't. Usually there's, I've got a project or a commission that I have to do, or even if I'm doing an expressionism piece, when, you know, my subconscious is spilling out. Usually it's not play. Usually uh, there's uh, a work, uh, usually work-oriented. But sure, sure, you can play, absolutely. Do you ever on occasion paint for yourself? You made a film that only you have seen. Have you painted a portrait or a picture that only you have visualized? I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. But on my walls now, actually, are, uh, I've got a bunch of landscapes because they look so good with the landscapes of my windows. Uh, yeah, so I'm in a different part. In, in, in the past, I had more heady pieces all over the walls, but here it is more tranquil. Landscape painter as opposed to a portraitist. What is the kind of transcendent beauty in doing a landscape? It doesn't seem to be as emotionally dangerous or vulnerable as looking at a face and finding the heart behind it. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I can see why you'd say that. But I think landscape's just easier because if you're off a tiny section, nobody knows. But if you're doing a portrait of somebody, you know, and you're off on the nose or the nostril a tiny bit, it's obvious. Perhaps this is an overtly technical question, but uh, we would like to ask it anyway. Uh, John Ford, the great director, he gave advice to Steven Spielberg at one time. Uh, Spielberg said, how do I know how to make this shot? He said, look for the horizon. Look for the horizon and then point your camera at it and roll it. How do you start a painting, you yourself? What is your methodology? Well, that's interesting because many times I have drawn a horizon line. Uh, hmm. uh, yeah, it all depends on, on what type because I really do paint uh, all different kinds at this point. But if I'm just feeling if it's my expressionism, uh, I kind of like listen, you know. I, I'll kind of, uh, I kind of hear, oh, uh, yellow, uh, uh, ninety degrees to the top right, and I just, I just do that, and I just go with the whole thing. And then usually what comes out is I'll sit back later and think, oh wow, oh that's what happened last week. Oh, that's that woman. Oh. Can you paint a book? If indeed the colors can be extrapolated to indicate thought and inner feelings, can you paint a book theoretically? Huh. I don't know. I mean, they say a picture is a thousand words, so maybe you'd need like, what, uh, 15 paintings for a book? <laughs> <laughs> Any particular pieces that you're working on right now that perhaps you'd like to share with the audience? I did a, I just did Healing Meadow 
for uh, a charity, uh, and uh, it's on my wall here. It hasn't gone yet. It's going to go up for auction, and it's cool. It's like 24 by 36 inches, and uh, I tried to implement like 30 different ways people can heal themselves. So there's everything from uh, lemons to uh, uh, doctors to uh, pills to uh, animals playing with different instruments. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of it. It's, it's pretty elaborate. Have you ever considered writing a children's book or dealing with children's paintings? Hmm. But uh, what comes up there is I, I, there's a great line in uh, Six Degrees of Separation. Maybe you know it because you're so good with quotes. Where uh, uh, I forget the actor, but uh, they say that the teacher was teaching the kids. And uh, the question was, how can they all look like Matisse's? Mm. And the teacher said, I just know when to take the canvas away. So Will Smith portrayed a role that you foresee on canvas. All right, taking that perhaps a step forward, and I'm looking at the clock, and it's terribly depressing as it usually is when a conversation is going well. We're within two minutes of the end of the program. Can you share with the listening audience your plans for the future, Tom? I'm working on several books. There's also another book called 100 Black and White Male New Prints that I'm working on as a coffee table book, and that's like uh, 100 of my male new paintings that are like little prints. And like I said, I've got this other book coming out, How Men Really Feel About Sexual Assault. And I do plan to write some more books for next year. There's a vegan co- coffee, vegan cookbook, and then there's also a spirit guide account book that I want to share with people. So... You know, I just hope that I will continue to be healthy, that I'll continue to do what I want each day, and, uh, you know, that I'm protected and my dogs are great. It seems that uh, you are an inherent poet, able to rhyme and put together your life experiences so that they make some sense. There are many who haven't reached that point yet. Have you ever written poetry? I did as a kid, uh, but no, I haven't thought about that for decades. But thank you. I I appreciate the compliment. It's my pleasure. In that one minute we have, to the listener in the audience, whose life might reflect to some degree your own, can you proselytize a bit and give that stranger your advice in some final thoughts? In a little bit less than a minute. Sure. I think, uh, well, I think, uh, I do think that uh, what we concentrate on, like like Jane Roberts, the Seth books in the 70s, my favorite quote from that is, uh, we are what we concentrate upon. There is no other main rule. And that's it, you know. So I was having a hard time earlier today on the phone two hours with Amazon Publishing trying to figure out why something wasn't working and I was going nuts when you first called me and you know now I'm in a totally different mood because of your generous uh, uh, just interaction and I can see how this feeds me and then I'm going to go for a walk with my dogs and take your mood with me instead of the frustrated phone mood so that would be my advice to people is just really choose your mood I appreciate that we have to bring it to an end Perhaps we can do this again on a future occasion, Tom. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. 